I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the return of the Netflix documentary series, Our Planet 2. And only now are we beginning to understand that all life on Earth depends on the freedom to move. Today, we're talking to executive producer Keith Scully and series producer Hugh Cordy. In every corner of our world, at any given moment, billions of animals have someplace important to be. From whales to pumas, from crablets to cranes, almost every animal migrates. They're driven by instinct and patterns of their ancestors over millions of years. And the health of our planet depends on it. But as the climate warms and the impact of humanity spreads into ever more remote regions of the natural world, can these animals adapt to survive? Our Planet 2 takes us to some of the most remote locations on the globe and gives us never-before-seen images of creatures on the move and on the hunt. And as the animal kingdom moves with purpose, we must ask whether humans will stand in their way or help them go where they need to be. And with our help, many animals are now overcoming the challenges of our modern world. For a healthy and connected planet, We must preserve the freedom to move. And if we do, the vital journeys of each and every animal will continue for years to come. And I'm joined now by executive producer Keith Scully and series producer Hugh Cordy. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thanks very much. Great to be here. This is season two of Our Planet. The first season won two Emmy Awards, including Outstanding Documentary Series for you, Keith. How long has season two been in the works? It's been about at least four years uh, since of actual production. We started right as... uh, COVID hit us. And I say that's sort of a reminder of the the sort of starting point. And um, really only wrapped the series up a couple of months ago. Wow. I think that what sets this season apart is it does have this theme about migration. And each of the stories has to do with the animal's ability to move about great distances to eat or mate. Can you tell us about the decision to focus on this really unique phenomenon in nature? Yes. Well, the first series was about habitats. And this series takes a step back and looks at how those habitats are joined up by the animals that move between them. Um, you know, the diversity of the habitats that featured in it in series one are dependent um, completely on migrating animals. So it just seems sensible as the next stage from our planet one to tell this story. I'm curious about the meeting where you decide which animals to feature. How do you make those decisions? Do you argue about who's going to make the cut and who isn't going to make the cut? Well, it can get a bit like that, actually. But I think, you know, this is for a popular audience. So we have to go with the iconic animals, the polar bears, the lions, uh, the orcas. 
But at the same time, they don't always tell the best stories. So we really go where we can find the best stories. And that happens to be a locust or, a, you know, something in the macro department. That's where we'll go. Do you think about other nature documentaries, like what has, you know, what, what's been featured before? Do you think about other documentarians and what they've shown and what they haven't shown when you're making your own nature documentary? Yeah, I think, I think we, we absolutely do. And uh, there's a lot of it about. But I think we always try to find new stories if we can. But we're not frightened of telling old stories. But when we go back to old stories, we show them in a new way. And I think that's the kind of trick. And um, Hugh and the team have been amazing in our planet, too, of actually taking some stories that you might think, wow, I've seen that before, but I've never experienced it like that. This, this genre is never about going for the low-hanging fruit. Um, you know, the audience has high expectations, and that means that we have to find new stories. And as Keith says, you know, fresh way of telling uh, old or more familiar stories. I'm really interested in the groups of animals that you follow specifically. Sometimes it's like a, you know, a family unit. Sometimes it's a larger group because a lot of the stories seem to have like, for lack of a better word, like a hero animal mm. at its center. You sort of follow one animal's journey. Do you select those sort of as you're filming or are you looking at all the footage and you're thinking like, this is the one, this is the one whose story we kind of want to show? I think, I think it always helps for the audience to have a key character, especially with a big animal, like a bird or a a mammal. So, and we've had lots and lots of experience at telling these sort of character-driven stories. Um, so wherever we can, that's what we try to infuse. You get to a bit of a problem though, when you want to identify with a locust, because um, <laughs> so, somehow, somehow actually finding the hero locust who's going to start his journey in Kenya and end up in India. Is probably that one. is probably a bit of a stretch. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the one with the, the one with the little yellow spot. So I, I I think often when we get into smaller creatures and what have you, it, it's it's often harder to um, really identify with an individual. But certainly with big complex animals, that that's the way to go for sure. All right. I, I am going to ask you more technical questions later, but since we're talking about the locusts, I have to ask about that footage because you're inside the swarm, right? They come together to form a super swarm, the biggest seen in 70 years, 200 billion strong. And as a viewer, I assumed it was a drone shot. Is that right? There were drone shots and shots with long lenses from the ground or, okay. or, or tripod shots, yes. So if you have a drone inside of a swarm of locusts, how does that drone just not get completely knocked out of the sky by all of these bugs. Well, uh, amazingly, it didn't. And I think it was the sort of testament to the skill of the pilot that he managed to keep the drone just far enough away from the swarm so as to not destroy it and, and perhaps lose our footage. But I have to say that it didn't always happen. We were filming snow geese in America, North America, and a snow goose did collide with one of our drones. But I'm sure your listeners will be very pleased to know that it was the drone that came off worse. The snow goose flew on, the drone flew down and smashed into the ground. But we did get the footage back. As somebody who's interacted with a lot of geese on their morning walks, I believe that 100%. <laughs> they're very hardy animals. They're very hardy, very large. And <laughs> our, our drones, the great thing about our drones these days is they're very small, um, but they don't stand up well to large animals. But 
as you said, uh, with a with a swarm of locusts, it would be very easy for them to completely engulf a drone and, and, and bring it down. But it didn't happen on that particular shoot. You know, it seems like throughout my lifetime, a nature documentary isn't a nature documentary if Sir David Attenborough isn't the one narrating it. The zebra can wait no longer. They must stay with the herd. So the young foal must now swim for his life. And I'm wondering if you're at the point where when you're writing narration for this, if you're actually writing for him. I mean, we absolutely do. Both Hugh and I have worked with with David for a very, very long time. And I think when you know you're doing a series that David's going to narrate, you you definitely think as far as you can how David would say it. David, though, then gets hold of your script and he then turns it into exactly what he would say. And I guess some of us who probably had more time writing for him, he doesn't have to do so much work. He puts days and days of work into his script and then he really then puts a lot of concentration into the performance of how he's going to narrate it. The actual recording of the script is often done in little longer than the duration of the show. Um, mm. Because with David, you don't really direct him. He he controls the, his performance because he's written it, he's prepared it. He's the genius, the master of delivery and thinks very hard about it. And um, we generally just, you just let David go. And David, when he's narrating, he always has the picture up in front of him. He's He's actually narrating to the picture as it happens. And uh, that's also very, very important. So, um, hmm. no, he's uh, he is the master of that business, that's for sure. And, and there are not many narrators who could get away in this day and age with using the words nevertheless. But David seems seems to have his own set words and they may feel sort of less used in today's scripts, but he can always pull it off. And there are some words that he really doesn't like. Um, he doesn't like using the word mum Hmm. So if you um, if you want to use the word mum, you have to change it to mother. And actually, that worked extremely well on one of our sequences um, set in, the, in Christmas Island with the Christmas Island crablets, where we have a scene of an adult crab eating its young. But before they've even left the beach, they are attacked by someone unexpected. And uh, the joke is... When, uh, when this happens, David says... Mother? Mother. Um, <laughs> as, as, as she's ploughing into the, the tiny little uh, crablet larvae. Yeah, there's something about his voice, I will say, that gets, I think, the viewer through some of the scenes that might feel more brutal from the animal kingdom, you know, like animals killing other animals, for instance. It's like David knows how to talk about it in a way that makes you understand that it is the natural world, you know, that it isn't, you know, anth- he doesn't anthropomorphize to the point where you're like feeling, you know, like you're taking sides. You sort of understand that this is how animals survive. I think he really is the master in that way. Um, there is another sort of sonic narrator in the series, though, and that is your musical score, which is stunning, I have to tell you. And I'm wondering what kind of, you know, directions, instruction, guidance you give a composer when you're talking about such different scenes, you know, a walrus on an ice drift versus a lynx going after a snow hare. Versus, you know, billions of little crabs running around. 
Yes, I think it's all about emotion. So, you know, when we're editing the, the film and offline editing, we're using a lot of tap music. So we're already trying to sort of gauge what kind of mood and atmosphere we want for the piece. And, you know, if we can get it right, it becomes a good guide for the composer. Um, you know, we had two exceptional composers, Jasha Klieb from, uh, from California and Tom Farnand from uh, London, and the two worked together on this series. And they had different strengths. And interestingly, Jasha, who was leading it, would say that if he had done a particular animal before, he'd pass it on to Tom because he said, well, you know, I've done stuff with Lynx before. Maybe not this, but maybe you have a go. And, you know, the, re- the way they worked was was just trying to tell stories with the music, trying to, you know, create the emotion that the pictures are trying to tell you. You know, sometimes it needs sort of a sparse effect, but other times you need, you know, a, an orchestra going hammer and tongs. Um, so it's very, very varied, and it depends on the species and depends on the type of emotion that you're trying to portray. Hmm. And they're brilliant in that what they're so good at doing is picking out the moments of action. I think writing music for natural history is really, really difficult because, as Hugh says, you've got to drive the whole emotion because normally in a drama, it's the script that drives that and the performances. You haven't really got that except for what David can put in. But the score has to do all of that, but also to heighten those moments to bring your attention to them. And it's very, very skillful composing. And yeah, they've done a fantastic job on this one. So this is a big question. Your thesis statement is that the freedom to move is vital to species and the health of the planet. Can you talk about some of the ways in which people have directly or indirectly interfered with wildlife migration? I think we as a species, certainly now, like to hold territory. We like to divide landscapes. We like to put up fences. We like to put up barriers and borders and so on and so forth. A lot of the natural world, though, can't operate with barriers and borders. So I think that's the first thing that nature has often found very, very difficult to actually deal with, the fact that we put up these obstacles like fences and so on and so forth. Then layered on top of that, we, you know, we, we have a huge amount of technology now, whether it's be big ocean ships driving through our ocean, creating a lot of noise that disorientate big whales and stuff like that, or could even collide into them. I think the hope for the series is to say to everyone, look, please be aware of this, that to a certain extent, our natural way to go is to subdivide to, to break things up, but spare a thought for nature that actually needs an open world to be able to roam freely through. And uh, I think that's the message of the series. You know, these migrations, some of them are extraordinarily challenging for the animal. You know, you've got a, a shearwater that makes a 65,000 kilometer journey every year. I mean, that's difficult enough without having to deal with, you know, the human challenges led on top of that, whether it's shipping or planes or habitat loss or overfishing or, you know, whatever it is that we're doing to the planet, it has a marked impact on so many different animals. 
So one of the most dramatic stories in the series, I think, is that of the Laysan albatross. And there's a couple of important migrations here. And one of them is actually the migration of the plastic that's surrounding their island and how that is, you know, destroying the environment and actually killing these birds. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, all that plastic obviously comes from continental air masses. And in the case of the Laysan, I mean, it could come from North and South America, or it could come from from Asia. But it, you know, we know that plastic survives for dozens of years, if not hundreds of years. So it, it just you know comes down rivers, uh, off land masses into the ocean, and drifts for months and months and months and years until it hits a piece of land. And although the island where these Laysan albatross are found, it's actually called Laysan Island, is one of the most remote islands in the world. It's absolutely carpeted with plastic because of the impact of ocean currents. And, you know, it's bad enough to see this incredibly remote island with these extraordinary birds on it, you know, sitting amongst a sea of plastic. But of course, what's happening is that as this plastic is floating across the ocean, it's being picked up by the adult albatross who mistake it for pieces of fish or, or you know, detritus which they could feed to their chicks unaware that it's plastic. So when they return to the island and start regurgitating the food they found in the ocean, it's got plastic in it, whether it's printed cartridges or, or cigarette lighters or whatever. It's absolutely tragic. The parents mistake small floating pieces for food and bring it to their young, accidentally killing them. It's almost certain that every chick on the island has plastic in its stomach. Those that are fed too much starve to death. The species is being impacted two ways. So it's pretty obvious you don't just have, you know, a crew waiting on that island for months and months. How much consulting do you do with how many different kinds of scientists when you're putting together a documentary like this? The scientists are hugely important to any natural history film. Obviously, it varies from sequence to sequence, but um, it's their information uh, and the way that they've often habituated animals, they've learned about the details that allows us to do what we do. You, you know, you get a good scientist, he can say, right, get here for the 23rd of July and we'll give you two or three days grace and then boom, it's going to happen. And sure enough, it happens. So, um, yeah, we are really indebted. That said, quite often what we film and what we observe is really helpful for them. So there there can be some, you know, payback there. I'm wondering if it's just long lenses, because I know the key to success in a nature documentary is to sort of be invisible and let animals do their thing. But it also occurs to me, like a lot of these animals are hunters with very acute senses. Um, Do you ever get the sense that they know that you are there? Well, I think... If, if it's a predator and they know you're there, they've got to be habituated to stick around. Hmm. If they're not habituated, you'll never see them. So when we were filming lynx, for example, and they were very wild lynx, it was extraordinarily difficult to get close. But, you know, if you're in the Masai Mara, the Serengeti, where animals are very used to seeing humans, then, you know, you, they, you can film them while they go about their business. There is one extraordinary place that we filmed a a top predator. And uh, it's a very, very unique experience. And it's and it happens in, in, in Chile. We filmed a mountain lion in Torres del Paine, a, a 
And these mountain lions were habituated to an extent that you could actually follow them on foot, which I don't think you can do anywhere else in the world. It is quite extraordinary. Hmm. This is a large predator that you can be within a few meters of. And there's only a few of them. They're just, just the ones that have habituated to, to humans and scientists. And at one point, the camera team filmed uh, a large adult female hunting a guanaco, which is a very large prey, like a llama. And it runs at it, jumps on its back, and it's being sort of flicked backwards and forwards as the guanaco is trying to escape. And the guanaco is eventually brought down within two or three meters of the camera team standing there with a tripod. I mean, it is the most extraordinary shot and the most extraordinary experience. But that kind of thing is very rare around the world. Normally, you'd have to be in a vehicle. That's incredible. Can you talk about some of the challenges for these crews, the challenges in filming and the challenges of keeping them supplied? I mean, some of these destinations are pretty remote, right? They are. So, you know, some cases it's like a military operation. You know, you have to plan it a a year or more in advance. I mean, that's one of the reasons for having such a big production period, because you're going to extraordinarily remote places and, you know, setting up uh, experts and getting permits and so on can take a huge amount of time. But it just varies hugely from one place to another. So I don't think there's any sort of a set plan for, for a shooting location. But I think the real stress that always plagues us all is when's it going to happen? Mm. And it's become almost a cliche in our business, but um, you end up saying it always happens on the last day. So, you know, you, you go on location for four weeks. And in fact, a very good example in this series was the polar bear shoot, where uh, to film polar bears in the summer, um, when the sea ice is melted, you have to have a liverboard boat, which is hugely expensive. And so the the pressure is really, really on um, to, to try and find behaviour. And I believe, Hugh, you correct me if I'm wrong, but nearly all the polar bear sequences that we shot for this series happened in the last few days. And they'd been mm. there for about four weeks with absolutely nothing. Polar bears use five times more energy when swimming than walking. And that is beginning to take its toll on her smallest cub. Yes, the last 48 hours, we got everything. But I guess it was uh, in the Arctic summer, so it was 24-hour daylight. So, uh, you know, it, it increased our chances. Often it does, as Keith said, it happens on the last day, but sometimes it doesn't happen at all. Mm. So we planned this very expensive shoot to Christmas Island to film uh, the return of the of the crablets. So everyone knows about the Christmas Island crabs. The adults migrate across the island and release all their eggs into the ocean. And in 30 days, the crablets are supposed to return in vast numbers. Well, this doesn't happen every year. In fact, sometimes you don't get a big return for years and years and years. But we really wanted to film this. It was such a unique uh, story that we wanted to give it a go. And the first year we filmed it, uh, not a single crablet came back. So the team spent three weeks on Christmas Island over Christmas and not a single crablet returned. So it was very disappointing. 
Uh, now, we could have just left it at that. Having sort of failed once, you think, well, do I want to get bitten by this again? Uh, particularly when you learn that uh, a big return might not happen for several years at a time. But we decided to give it a go. And we are so grateful that we did because the next year, uh, we had this vast return. I mean, millions and millions of crablets. And they turned up on Christmas Eve on Christmas Island. So it was a very special day for the team uh, and for us too on the, on the series because it made an amazing sequence, I think. I will say, though, when I was watching that sequence and I see, you know, a couple of months later, those billions of tiny baby crablets return, they carpet everything. And there's this shot of the swarm of crablets traveling over somebody's sandal. Yes. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> no, they're quite friendly little critters, aren't they? I, I think they're kind, of Pixar, they're kind of Pixar crabs. You know, if Pixar did crabs, they would do the little Christmas Island crabs because they do have quite a lot of charisma. But as you say, I think it's the sheer numbers that would terrify some Yeah, people. a lot of anything yes. is, is pretty yes. scary. It's like carpeted <laughs> in red crabs. Exactly. So with the latest cameras, you can obviously get very, very tight on an animal. You can catch the eyelashes on the lions in Botswana. But we talked about this a little bit. Um, the drone technology seems to be like a game changer in documentary filming, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, complete game changer. When we did the first series of Our Planet, we had drones, but they were big, heavy, clunky, and often wouldn't go entirely where you wanted them to go to. Now the drone technology is so sophisticated. And what's great is they become really small and really quiet. And that allows you to stay in the air for up to 40, 40, 45 minutes. So actually watch behavior. Uh, but also because they're small and quiet, they really don't disturb the animals. So um, they're becoming, yeah, they're absolutely fantastically useful for us. I'm curious because you talked about your footage being helpful to scientists, too, because these drones seem to provide this unseen view of things. I'm thinking of the pursuit of penguins by the leopard seals or the lion taking down the water buffalo. Have we seen things like this before? I think people will say they've seen lions predating buffalo. But I think you're right. Is, is, is your, your first instinct was that this feels fresh. And I think that view from the air is something that people will not have seen before because of the reasons that Keith gave. You know, they didn't exist six or seven years ago. The technology wasn't there. And if you wanted to film a scene like that from a helicopter, you'd have to be sort of half a mile away using a very long lens. So I think the sort of feel of this new drone experience is very, very different. And in fact, during that shoot, the lion and buffalo shoot, we filmed the largest buffalo herd that had ever been filmed. Mm. And the scientists were extremely really, really excited by it. In fact, you know, when we returned, we had a message from them straight away saying, you know, please let us have a look at the shot. We want to actually count the numbers. And we sent it to them and they counted. They said, yes, this is officially the largest buffalo herd that's ever been recorded. So as Keith said earlier, it's quite nice to be able to help the scientists that had helped us. Hmm. I'm curious about the drones. I have another question about them because the viewer is in the middle of flocks of birds sometimes, the middle of the snow geese over the North Americas and then those cranes over the Himalayas. Can you just talk about how that's done? Is the drone actually among the birds? 
Well, I think when you're doing when you're filming large animals, you know, you don't want to get too close because you know there's always that fear, as we talked earlier, that there would be a collision, and you don't want to you don't want to be you know harming any animal. But you know, at the same time, you know, you're pushing it because you want the drama. These drones are fantastic, but they've got quite a wide angle lens, so you have to be fairly close in order to create the drama that you're after. So I think there's a balance. You know, these drones are not so cheap that you can afford to sort of write them off every shoot. And you've got to be sort of sympathetic to the, you know, to what the animals are doing. They're making this journey. You don't want to, you know, create a stress in, in, in their lives by getting too close. Mm. I'm curious about some of your artistic choices because, you know, we do understand that the circle of life is part of these creatures' existence. But man, it really seems to be tough to be a turtle hatchling on a <laughs> beach in Mexico. They're just getting like scooped up one after another by birds and crabs and other predators. This was edited like almost like an action film. It was just like boom, boom, boom. But the little turtles keep arriving in such numbers that the predators simply can't keep up. And that is their only chance of reaching the water. Can you talk about uh, your artistic choice there, just to just cut that so tightly? Well, you know, the reason why turtles lay so many eggs is because so few of them make it. Right. Um, so it's, an, you know, it's all part of the, the natural story of, of uh, the life of a turtle. And I think... There are so many different predators that hit those little hatchlings that we just wanted to tell tell that story in a, in a drama, it's like a you know a beach landing, you know, like a World War Wolf or two film. Yes. That's probably what you're referring to. It does feel like you know Saving Private Ryan, uh, where very few of the hatchling turtles are saved. Um, you know, and even when they get into the sea, you know, the story isn't over then because they can get hit by the frigate birds, and then there's sharks and fish and all sorts of other predators that will take them. So from you know a hundred eggs, you'd know, you'd be lucky if one of them actually survived to adulthood. Forty thousand you know adult turtles are laying hundreds of thousands of eggs so you know there's enough to sort of uh, create the next generation yes i'll tell you when we were watching that i turned to my husband and he said to me i feel like i'm watching reverse saving private Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. all, all the turtles going that way yeah. and yeah. none of them making it yes so keith i have to wonder do you have favorite nature sequences from season two yeah i most of them uh, but, <laughs> right yeah. no no it's it's what i love about season two is the variety and the pace and as I say it's got it's got big and you know impressive things i mean that whole the lion buffalo scene that we've talked about is very very dramatic as are the big wildebeest set pieces and i really love the puma sequence uh, which Hugh has talked about but i think for me some of the really special bits are are the smaller critters. There's an amazing sequence of a lake full of hundreds and thousands of tadpoles that migrate across this lake every day. And, and then they get sort of attacked by leeches and all sorts of things. Until after a few weeks, they start to look like tiny toads. By harnessing the sun's energy, they've grown quickly. Now, they stop their daily routines and prepare for their journey into the forest. Finally, they turn into little frogs and you think they're 
they emerge in their huge numbers only to meet a whole bunch of snakes that seem to just want to eat frogs. So those secrets, the more quirky ones, I think probably in the end of the day, the, those may be the ones the audience really remember, and like the Christmas crabs and, of course, the, the locusts. I'm hoping that on transmission night, the locusts will go viral. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to forget the locusts anytime soon. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really curious because you mentioned at the beginning that this film was sort of being conceived and started around the time the pandemic kicked off. How did COVID affect the shooting schedule and production of Our Planet Season 2? Well, it certainly affected it quite significantly, but perhaps not as much as we thought at the start. We started filming in June 2020 which was, I think, pretty much the first major lockdown. And our first shoot was actually that locust shoot where we filmed the massive swarm. And normally we'd, we would get specialists, wildlife camera teams from the UK or close by, or maybe the US, and put them on a plane. And obviously during lockdowns, we couldn't do this. So we had to completely rework the way we did things. And in that particular case, we just had to get on the phone and, and, and try to find local camera operators. And we were extremely lucky for that shoot and that sequence because we found two extremely talented people right there who were able to film those extraordinary shots. But, you know, over that year, um, there were several times when, you know, we thought we were going to be able to go and then had to cancel at the last minute. And there were other times when we just had to, you know, put people in quarantine for up to 10 days in order to, uh, to film the sequence. The Tawaki Penguins is one. Assistant producer and camera team uh, spent... 10 days in a hotel, or two weeks actually, 14 days, because New Zealand was really, really tight on their COVID rules. So they spent 14 days in a hotel before they were able to film that sequence. Yes, it was massively challenging and sort of uh, spread our team very, very thin for about a year and a half. I'd like to hear from both of you on this. Um, Keith, you know, we talked earlier about the ways humans can take action to, you know, mitigate some of the effects on animal migration that, you know, we've actually had on what it is that they do in the world. Uh, what are other larger lessons that we can learn from watching our planet? I hope the big story from the whole Our Planet project is to try to get across to people that nature is not only lovely and wonderful, but it's really important for all of us. And uh, I think most people are now familiar with the fact that it's the natural world that takes most of the carbon out of the atmosphere. It's the natural world, if anything's going to save us from climate change, it's the natural world, because it has that ability to regulate climate and regulate the whole planet. And if we could just turn our thinking to say, let's have rather than less and less natural world, let's turn our thinking to have just more and more of it. And it bounces back very quickly. What we know is if we allow creatures to roam, if we allow habitats to recover, it comes back really, really fast. And our world suddenly goes from falling out of balance quickly back into balance. And aren't we all going to be so much better off for that? Certainly our ancestors will be, and they'll be very grateful for, for us for doing it. So I think at the heart of the whole Our Planet journey and project, that is at the heart of it. Get the whole natural world back on its feet and help it. You agree, Hugh? 
Yes, there's not a lot I can add to that. But what I will say is, you know, as somebody who's made these big landmark films like Keith for uh, 20 or more years, is that, you know, people won't care about things if they don't know about them. So, you know, part of our job is to show things that they didn't know and try to explain it in such a way as to, to make it not just entertaining, but so they've got a sort of like a, a greater appreciation of the natural world. So I think along with our Planet One, I really hope that people feel a much greater understanding of what drives the natural world after watching this series. Well, the series is Our Planet Two, and it is fascinating. Keith Scully and Hugh Cordy, thank you so much for joining me to talk about it. It was really, really wonderful to talk to both of you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Keith Scully and Hugh Cordy. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up as a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>